Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of May 19th, 2022. This week, we are talking about the Avatar 2 trailer. We seldom talk about trailer drops, but, you know, it's been 13 years. We can talk about Avatar 2. Uh, we're going to be talking about an insane Mike Nichols caviar story that I hate uh, and I have some hot takes about. We're going to be talking about pitching, trying to get other people to give you money for stuff. And we're going to wrap it all up with some tech news about a clip-on filter system that I actually think works. That is this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, our first story this week, Avatar 2, the trailer is here. The Twitter discourse is hot. I have like massively complicated feelings about the original Avatar. Um, there are things I really like about James Cameron. There's James Cameron movies I really like. Avatar is not one of them. I don't hate it. I don't have any objection to it. It just didn't stick with me. This is someone else's observation, but somebody else was like, Avatar is the most profitable movie of all time, but like name one character and one line they said. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I can't. And I mentioned that to one of my, to my students once. And one of my students was like, Sully. And he said, whoa, when he got in the Avatar suit. And I was like, okay, uh, you guys are different generations. But yeah, I mean, it is, a, it is an interesting blockbuster in that it hasn't stuck with us in a way that a lot of James Cameron movies do in terms of character, dialogue, and story. Like when we talk about Terminator 2, and Terminator, and all sorts of other great James Cameron work, like, there are dialogue moments that we still talk about 25 years later that have entered the culture. There are, like, action moments that we still talk about. There's the, you know, there's all of that stuff. And Avatar strangely absent of that in a way that, like, it's strange to me that this is a blockbuster. And then all of the discourse on this one, uh, the trailer finally coming out, is that it's 13 years later, which is, like, forever in the blockbuster universe we live in today. Like the target market for this kind of movie is a 15 year old. So those people were three when Avatar 2 came out and hopefully we're not in the theater watching Avatar 2. But also like the Marvel, like the industry's changed. The Marvel Cinematic Universe is now what we think of as a blockbuster franchise. And that had what, like two movies in it when the first one started. And now it is the ultimate driver of theaters. So it's just sort of a very interesting thing to think about like where Avatar fits and has the culture moved on a bit from what James Cameron was hoping would be like, I can take my time with these to something that needs to be a little more like there's not an Avatar TV series to bridge the gap of the 13 years. <laughs> there's not been little spinoff movies. There's not been. And it's like, it's interesting to think about how different the world is as Avatar 2, the trailer drops. Yeah, all that is true. From a personal taste standpoint, I have always thought of James Cameron as a very skilled, like the highest level of attention to detail, talented director, writer, filmmaker, who doesn't miss. Like he makes movies that just don't. He comes out and makes movies that are like, oh, you got it. Connects every time. Like he didn't make bad movies. But for me personally, I never really felt like I loved, loved. And this is, I guess, something of a hot take, but it's taste. So whatever. I never loved, even T2, like if for people my age, it was like seminal. It was like, it's good. Like, but I just didn't love it. It's not Star Wars. It's not, for me, it's not in that category, Raiders of the Lost Ark or any other number of things. And I never felt like he had that. So when Avatar came out and people just, Gush. 
I was sort of like, eh, I don't know, man. Like to me, there was a spectacle element. There was a 3D thing, but it was a super paint by numbers story. I felt like there were a lot of things that were kind of like over the top corny and goofy about it. And it was easier for me to, to laugh at it than to be like blown away. I also feel like it didn't have any self-awareness or humor, which for me is huge in a movie as far as taste. So I'm just talking about my personal taste. So my interest level when this trailer comes out personally was not like that high. Like I wasn't like, oh my God, I can't wait to return to the world of, uh, what do you call it? Fern Gully. And so I, <laughs> I, I think that that colors it for me like a lot. And yet I know people who loved it can't wait. Many of our own no film school writers and that's, you know, so, so for me to talk about it, it's a little hard because I just don't have that kind of religious uh, fandom relationship with his work or with this movie. I just don't. But I'll say this about him, and I think this is more objective. I think that it would be surprising if it was not a good movie, because I just don't think the man does that. Like, I think he's an extremely careful, competent, intelligent, detail-oriented to the point of going over the top and hurting people and being too, caring too much, maybe even. But like that, it, that aside, like we've talked about that kind of thing ad nauseum. Like, and actually we'll be talking about it again today, but like some directors and writers and this whole agenda of being like the tortured genius and every little detail matters. And he's gone way too far. The stories of like his stuff. And, and if that means his movies are good, you know, at what cost? Like making Ed Harris cry after a day of shooting on Abyss? It's like, is Abyss worth it? I mean, is any movie worth <laughs> worth it? That's another debate philosophically. But my feeling is like, here's my thing. Let's talk about it more objectively and not just what I think, because who cares what I feel? Like, the thing is, technology has changed a lot. And visuals in filmmaking have changed a lot. And when the first Avatar came out and they had this 3D thing going on and this motion capture stuff was cutting edge and he was pushing the envelope, people were just taken with that and what he was doing. But what can he do? What could it possibly be visually that could be in the same? Like, it doesn't, I don't think it has anything like that from a technical visual standpoint. And I think that's what made the first movie, made it easy to look past that it wasn't a very like unique or original storyline. It was like, oh, but my God, look what they've done. Well, that's, it's been done a lot. You know, is there anything like that here? Or is this just a sequel to that story, which that story like was not that great, you know? I also think that like, yes, we are a cinema of spectacle and I do believe in that. But in a CG world, where the spectacle itself is no longer impressive because you're like, well, you just CG'd that. Like, I'm not that totally. impressed. You just like, we've pivoted also to like a cinema of character. Like all of the memes about Spider-Man and all of the memes about Captain America are about their personality. You know, they're all about like the jokes they make, how they interact with the world, who they are as characters. That's like, that's how the Marvel Cinematic Universe is driven is that it's about like these characters you engage with in the spectacle. And so thinking about like thinking about avatar Sully? within <laughs> Sully. Yeah. Thinking about Sully, thinking about, thinking about so when I Sully. hear the character named Sully, I feel like 
That's really his name? Aren't there more? There are even more famous cinematic Sullies. But I was, you know, when you say that character thing, you're pointing out Marvel and the MCU, and that's true. But it certainly existed prior. I mean, Darth Vader or Marty McFly or the Terminator or John McClane. Or when we're talking about summer movies and blockbusters and all that stuff, like it's it really is. And it always has been. I, I, this is so cliche because you'll always hear people say it's about character and it's about story. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, it's not. Not not most of the time to executives. And I mean, they w- everybody wishes that's what it's about, but it's not. But why did the Pirates of the Caribbean movies work? It was because of this performance that was strange and this performer who went out on a limb and created and they created something. Or why did why does the MCU work? It's Iron Man and Robert Downey Jr. That's a huge, huge part of it. Yes, yeah, Sully and the rest of the Avatar cast of characters is not dynamic or exciting or memorable. And so, yeah, that's a great point. That's another piece of it. It's not just it's not just the plot wasn't all that original or exciting. It's also that the characters don't give you. I, who is waiting to see what happened next to those people? I don't even remember what happened last to them. <laughs> yeah, it's like even the biggest spectacle we have. All of the movies except for the Avengers are named after the characters. It is the Scarlet Witch movie. It is the Iron Man movie. It's Doctor Strange into the Mouth of Madness, whatever. Like, we, we're going because we're excited to see those characters do new things. And it's very hard for me to imagine. I suspect Avatar 2 is not going to do the numbers that Avatar 1 did. I could be wrong. I've been wrong in the past. But my suspicion is that there is not a built-in audience of people dying the same way to see this new technology. Because I also wonder, like, what, like, I'm watching the trailer and I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of video games who look, that look this good now. Oh, like, yeah. Like, it's also not no, 2009. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like, not, it's not unique looking. Like, it, I mean, but, but the trailer, I, here's my prediction. I predict it will do great numbers. Maybe not the numbers of before, but I just do think that it will because I don't know why. Just do. What I predict, even though this goes against what I said earlier, as I think we might, actually finally see James Cameron make a pretty like mediocre or less than mediocre movie. I think that we're, we may finally be getting to that point where it's going to be like more not great than great for him. And I think that partly because of just the aging process, like it's hard to stay on the pulse and not be doing, getting reps and not be making movies. And, but I, that's just my prediction. It's like, I think, and I know that's a very subjective thing for people to determine. It's like, well, is it, is it good? Is it 51% good and 49% bad or whatever? But that's just my prediction. And I, I think that the character thing is a really, really good point. I mean, you could tell us that, I mean, this makes me so, I keep talking about Star Wars, which, you know, is part of my, just my age range. But like Indiana Jones coming back at any point is or Luke Skywalker, or like you said, Spider-Man, or Superman, or whatever. It's always going to be, there's always going to be a little bit of a, well, you know, the characters are back, and, and you know, that's who we're following, checking in on, and we're going to see what's happening. And I think that it's very hard to make the case that a franchise that has no great character is going to be, you know, have longevity. And maybe they're inventing new characters for this that'll be great. But I'm betting, I'd bet against it if I bet on such things. I remember the bad guy from the first one because he gave an amazing performance, Jason Behe. And when he was in the Going Clear documentary, 
he was wearing amazing sweaters. Seriously, if you want to see some amazing sweaters, go watch Jason Behe and Glenn Clear. So I remember him. I remember the actor name, but I could not tell you his character. And I don't remember if he died in the movie or not. And it's like, that seems like a big deal. If the bad guy survives or not, no idea. And like watched it in the theater. Don't you mean Stephen Lang? Oh, is it Stephen Lang who played the bad guy, not Jason Behe? Yes. Well, I don't know if Stephen Lang had cool sweaters. We're just going to have to leave that. Uh, if anybody knows if Stephen Lang has cool sweaters, let us know on Twitter. Um, so, but I forgot some of the people who are in this. I do remember Sigourney Weaver was in it. Yeah. Well, she's and in I everything. I remember Giovanni Ribisi was in it and he played. And I, this is the thing. Like the, With him, I just remember that the thing they're mining is called Unobtainium, uh, which oh, felt yeah, like the which dumbest is, thing ever. <laughs> it, well, just was like, it felt like a placeholder. <laughs> and I was like, no, you replaced right. the placeholders. Like that's a placeholder line that you put in your script as a joke. You're like, okay, it's unobtainium. That's kind of the thing I mean, where it's like, it felt like the facade of Cameron's, like, I don't do sloppy was cracking. And I know that's like crazy to hold. I I feel like so many people in the filmmaker community, we don't usually do this, talk about filmmaking and filmmakers this way in this negative kind of critical minutia light. But like, it, expect, no film school is like, you know, making a movie of Avatar scale, such a crazy achievement and challenge. And like, I just want to put that out there that like, but it's James Cameron. The man doesn't leave a hair out of place on his movies. And so the line, like the thing being called unobtainium would be like if Spielberg made a movie and Indiana Jones was searching for the lost MacGuffin. Like, it really feels like that. Like, and I just, feel like James Cameron, like that was a sign that he was like, ah, I don't know, what unobtainium, who cares? That's not what I care about. And it's like, huh? are you, uh, are you starting to, to like, you know, slip a little bit here? I think so. Yeah. I felt like it was more of a, like a deliberate, like, this is not what this is about, but yeah, it's like still a weird. Message. Yeah. It could yeah. be that. It could totally have been that. Yeah. That makes more sense because it doesn't seem like he'd be like, I don't, that feels like, a, like just, a, I don't care you know, genuinely don't care more like you shouldn't care, but still whatever it is, the fact of the matter is the avatar thing is, is bizarre that it's, it's just the weirdest thing to me. Like the investment in all of them upfront in advance, like based on what is available, what we know about that first movie and, but you know, made a lot of money. So, so we'll see. We shall see. Now let's move on to a movie that didn't make a lot of money regarding Henry. (laughs) You like that transition? I like that transition quite a bit. I'm, I'm really proud of that. So there's a story that, you know, every once in a while things bubble back up to the internet. And the thing that bubbled back up to the internet today or this last week was this story from Regarding Henry, where they were uh, directed by Mike Nichols, written by a very young J.J. Abrams, so young that I think he was credited as Jeff Abrams, not J.J. Like It was like his second movie. It was his second movie at 24, like which is crazy, but it was his second script. So in that movie, there's a scene where they're supposed to be at a fancy party. And Mike Nichols apparently shut down set to ensure, because he did not like the caviar that art department had placed in the bowls. It did not look like expensive caviar. It looked like cheap caviar. And so he shut down set for hours at a time to send people out to get better caviar so it would be better caviar in the bowls. And some folks have been interpreting this as like a dedication to craft, to be like, even these details matter. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, you fucked the fuck up, dude. The time you specify what caviar you want is in prep. You have meetings with art department. 
you have meetings with production designers. At some point, you say to the production designer, like, this is supposed to be an expensive party. I want all the details correct for an expensive party. You communicate that to a team ahead of time and like wasting hours of everybody's time on set because you didn't prep right. I don't know. It seemed like it was way more, honestly, when I read the anecdote, it seemed way less likely that it's about the caviar. And it seems way more likely that there was some sort of conflict going on between Mike Knuckles and producer Scott Rudin, who's famously full of conflict. And caviar was the excuse for some sort of other ego battle where, you know, Scott Rudin wanted Mike Nichols to do something like add a sex scene or who knows. And Mike Nichols was like, <laughs> I'm not doing that. And was like, and you want to remember how much power I have? I'm just going to shut down the shoot because I don't like the caviar. And we're going to sit here burning a, your money. I have a much easier time believing that. And I will admit it may in part be because I think very highly of Mike Nichols. And I think anybody who cares, and I agree with you, one, you screwed up if you didn't have that in, planned in advance, but two, like who cares? Like, it's weird to me that anyone would, care. that's James Cameron stuff. Like <laughs> that's the kind of thing, like I was saying about James Cameron that used to be like, no, the Titanic is painted like this and grabs the brush from the set person and starts doing it himself. Well, it's also like, is there a close-up on the caviar in the scene? Right. Does anybody linger on the caviar or is it just like set dressing? Is no one in a million years ever going to notice even, because you got to remember this is the 80s. No one had DVDs yet. You watched a movie in the theater. You couldn't pause it. So like there's a difference now where you're like, oh, someone pauses it. Or like, honestly, if you're making a children's movie, please make it so that someone can watch it eight times and keep discovering new stuff. Because if like when my daughter (laughs) falls in love with a new movie, I'm going to watch it eight times. So like, please, thank you so much for my neighbor Totoro because I keep seeing new stuff in it. But like nobody's falling in love with regarding Henry and watching it five times and being like, you know, that seems like really cheap caviar. I I just don't, these kinds of stories sometimes come out. And like the one I just referenced, like the James Cameron and the, sometimes, or I said earlier, James Cameron making Ed Harris cry. Some of these things take on a life of their own and get spun out of proportion and become false and fiction. And then the legend becomes fact. And then, you know, who knows? We don't know what happened on that set. We don't, we really don't. I mean, these, there, there could be some truth to it. There could be parts of it. You said Hollywood is like full of like lore like this. And so I've seen the same weird stories. Like there's a famous one I've heard attributed to multiple stars about injecting vodka into oranges and then eating oranges on set that had vodka in them. And I've heard it said about multiple stars who wanted to be drunk on set. So it's either like an old trick that one started and that others did, or it's something someone made up or one guy did it once or a girl did it once. And then other people, I like, it's just one of these things. There is a little bit of a game of telephone and it's a little, so as far as the caviar thing, like I, I wonder about the, the total veracity of the story. Part of that is because I do like Mike Nichols. I think he would have been better. I want to believe that he wouldn't have done that. But then again, I do also think there are these times, this is another one of those stories that you doubt sometimes could really be true, where on the Mutiny on the Bounty remake starring Marlon Brando, he had a super expensive, ridiculous hat. This is the story. And he kept throwing it overboard to just delay things and throw a wrench because he just wanted to be difficult <laughs> and ruin things. And he uh, thought the hat was dumb. And I, I, li- I like the story too because it's funny. And it's like, it was this big, overwrought, expensive, absurd remake. And he was just sabotaging it because he was like, I'm Marlon Brando. I think this is stupid and I don't care. And I think that there could be many instances where people did that. Maybe Mike Nichols was just in that kind of mood where he was just like, 
I'm sabotaging this because like you said, there's an argument over something else or I'm flexing my muscle or I don't feel like shooting today. I, no, and there was the actually a mo- whole lot of, like in, in the In Memoriam articles for Mike Nichols, there was a lot of like, he did have a strangely self-destructive streak to, like discussed quite frequently in the interviews. So yeah, I mean, I suppose it is possible. I just think of Mike Nichols as being such the consummate craftsman and being 30 mm-hmm. years into his career at this point that it's like, that's a prep conversation about what you are looking for there. And you know what's like, interesting about you saying that too, the consummate craftsman thing and the 30 years into his career is sometimes I think that after people get deep into their careers like that, they become slightly self-destructive in a weird way at the very, very peak of this industry. And it it's straight because you... You don't think you ever would hear a story like that about him making like the graduate where you're sort of making like breaking through and the energy is different and you're, you're, you're all invested in this thing. But regarding Henry and you've been doing this for a long time and maybe you think it's not very good or you're angry about it. I think that there's weird ways that people. Well, and the screenplay was written by someone who was born after you were, after you'd won an Oscar. <laughs> yeah, I I'm mean like, there's a lot of there could be a lot of stuff going on there that yeah, when they don't like what they're doing but they feel trapped or, you know. Yeah. Well, wow, we've we've given a free therapy session to someone who is gone. But I just want to say <laughs> if anybody is thinking on an independent feature, I should shut down my entire production all day with my leading star. I think this is something for later in your career and the and the best way is if the caviar is important to you to make sure you find a way to communicate that in pre-production where there is time to fix it. And time is everything. Like I'm shooting something in June and we just did our third test shoot. We're a month from shooting and we've now done three tests and every single one of the tests has taught us something that we're going to fix for test number, the next test. And by the time we show up on set, we will be like prepared because we're not going to have the time when we're on set to do it right. I'm glad you brought it to that because I was thinking, how do we make these two stories we're covering about like these absolutely apex filmmakers, like uh, doing like kind of crazy things with crazy money and all kinds of latitude about people who listen to this podcast or would. And I think one way is don't, because we hear these stories and we're inundated with them, we shouldn't ever feel captive to them or like they are some model of behavior, even, or even an indicator of any, like, Caring so much about the caviar that you would like caring at that level when you're trying to just get the job done and get seen and get reps, it feels like a terrible mistake. And I think that sometimes by repeating and glorifying these stories or even condemning them, we also kind of put it in the energy of it into the world where people think about it and they think, well, Mike Nichols, you know, like cared so much or John Ford shot so no one could recut his vision for the scene or like all those things we know about those people, those greats, you probably want to shelve it when you start working and think about it more from the perspective of your own needs and getting your jo- the job done in the best way possible, keeping people sane and happy. The way you're describing, Charles, with like tons of prep and, and focus and not the tortured genius stuff. Yeah. Moving on, tech news. So, uh, no, we didn't have tech news. No, we did, tech news. Moving on, in tech news. So, filters. I know people think you don't need them. Every once in a while I hear people say, like, you never need filters anymore because you can do everything in post. 
But filters are things we put in front of a lens or sometimes behind a lens to affect our image. ND filters, which are short for neutral density filters, are the classic, where you're like, oh, I want to make the whole image darker so that I can open my aperture, have a shallower depth of field. You get ND filters for drones now. A lot of cameras have internal NDs. But usually, on a motion picture camera, we use a matte box to hold our filters on. It's a longstanding thing. We do it, but like matte boxes are kind of pricey, and you got to have all the accessories, and it's a bigger rig. And there's this company, H&Y, out of Southeast Asia, who have dropped sort of a clip-on system for filters that I actually think is kind of way more robust than I thought it would be. Now, it's not robust enough. Don't use this for car mount work. If you're strapping the camera to a car, get a matte box out. But I, I was like, oh, I got to play with it a little bit. And it's like an expanding ring. You like twist it to make it small. And then it springs out to get big to hold on to the lens. And it's like, oh, if you need to pop like an ND filter on or a streak filter or something like that, this is actually a good system for like, oh, I'm building a little handheld rig. I don't want the weight of a full map box because you have a map box. You have to have rails, which means a plate. And sometimes you're like, I just want to snap a lens on. I just want to snap a filter on the front of my lens. And I was kind of impressed with H&I and the Revo ring. Like, it's something that a lot of people have been, like, trying to crack the nut in motion pictures of, like, how do we make it a fast, simple system? It uses magnets, which, like, hmm. I was not at all. I was, like, I read the press release, and I was, like, magnets and clips? But honestly, I tested a little bit, and I was, like, for certain scenarios, totally a usable setup. They have a whole bunch of filters available. They've got, like, streak filters if you want to do a fake anamorphic. They've got all sorts of cool stuff. And yeah, that is Technos, the H&Y Revo ring. I thought it was pretty slick. Very cool. Magnets is weird. I did not expect that. <laughs> I know, right? It doesn't seem like it would be strong enough to hold it on. And again, I'm like, please don't do this on car mount work. Don't do this on anything like high forces. But like little handheld rig, going out, shooting some over the shoulders, shooting some like run around docky stuff. Want to have a couple filter options? Pretty robust. And a quick change out. Very like, quick very change out. Snap on, snap nice. off. Yeah. All right. Quick and dirty No Film School podcast. Great week at the No Film School podcast. As always, I'm on the internet at charleshane.com and Twitter and Instagram at charleshane. And uh, yeah, check me out there. And I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. You can read about everything we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check us out on Instagram and YouTube, and be sure to send your questions to editor at nofilmschool.com. Thanks so much for listening.